Good morning, everyone. A good Sunday morning to you all. I pray that the Lord has been with you guys and that you are learning things about him during this time of social distancing and fear and anxiety and various forms of suffering, of difficulty. We are all trying to work through figuring this out together. And I pray that the Lord is making himself known to you in greater ways, at a minimum that you are praying more and that you are hungering and desiring his word more, that you want to know what he says in his word and that you are looking to him for answers. And you are also actively pursuing what you ought to do. And Pastor Chance had an awesome sermon this morning. Uh, displaying right in Philippians, right with the next passage on things that we are to do, to continue doing as Christians, as faithful believers in this day and age, even during this time of uh, difficulty, of pain, of suffering, of fear of the unknown, which may cause anxiety, of loneliness, all kinds of different things for different people with various situations. Uh, as Chance said, the situations are vast and it would be hard to pin down exactly what each person is going through and how they are dealing with this situation in their life. But I do pray that you are finding uh, some forms of strength in the Lord and that you are persevering and enduring for Christ's sake. And I pray that these um, clips that everyone are doing will encourage you as you spend your time serving and honoring the Lord with your life still to this day. And next week, Chance will preach another sermon. And uh, prayerfully, I will be able to go the week after that on April 19th uh, with a follow-up sermon regarding also why it is important and why it is eternally important. Emphasis on the eternal with regard to eternal reward on how we live and act during this time and the passages that talk to us about heaven and about Christ's rewards for his bride, his faithful bride, each individual and how they lived a life for him during all the days that the Lord gave to us. Uh, a line from Lord of the Rings reminds me of when one of the hobbits speaks to Gandalf and he was very, the hobbit expressed how he was very sad to see such times, such painful times of war and suffering. And he was there in the city of men and watching the humans, the men and their uh, families suffer with these, these large orc armies rallied against them. And so many people were dying and it seemed like a very gruesome, grim day. And Gandalf, the wise wizard, points out the wisdom of an eternal perspective. And he says, so do all who live to see such days. All people who live to see such pain and suffering don't understand it and wish that they could live in another time. But Gandalf points them to what they must do. Even while all wish to not see such times, he says what matters is what you do with the time that's been given to you. 
and that is very fitting for us now and it will always be fitting for us every day that we live our life whether we are celebrating the birth of a, of a child or mourning the loss of a dear old friend or witnessing plague and thousands perhaps millions of people being um, dying from various things what matters is what we do with the time that has been given to us. And so with that being said, we will move forward into our Romans 13 passage, continuing on the government. I'll read all of Romans 13, and today we will be focusing on verses 5, 6, and 7. Romans 13, 5, 6, and 7. Read with me. Romans 13, 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Do this knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Amen. Powerful words from the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. A wonderful section to know well. And if any of you love church history, the last part of Romans 13 there is St. Augustine's salvific section of scripture. 
it was when he read this section of scripture that his soul clung to Christ, that he finally laid down his lustful life with women and with drink, and he clung to the Lord and pursued a type of seminary education by pursuing another pastor and tutelage under him until he became a pastor and preacher of the gospel and ended up becoming the bishop and the pastor of the Church of Hippo in North Africa. So a powerful section of scripture for one of the most known saints in church history in the early part of the post-apostolic church fathers during the time of the church fathers. Romans 13, 5 through 7 will be the focus of our attention this morning. And I pray that it will serve you well during this time in your life as a disciple of the Lord. That you will learn in an area in which you can obey the Lord and honor him. And in that obedience, God will give you joy and blessing. In John chapter 15, Jesus talks about obedience to his disciples. And he lets them know that when you obey, God has joy, that he has joy in you, in your obedience. And he also promises that in your obedience, he will fill you with joy. He says, so that your joy may be made full. And so it's my prayer that in every detail of scripture, we not just pass it by, but we understand that Jesus has provided us his word and that all of his words are important. Now, some words are more important than others in the Bible, to be sure. Understanding the message of salvation. Some things are more critical for us to grasp. Nevertheless, Jesus says, not let, don't let one of the smallest, I'm not here to erase even the smallest bits of the law. And if you teach a disciple to neglect even the least of these commandments, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And so even the smallest commandments are important. They are important to Christ and they ought to be important to us. And so let us not be ignorant and ignore a passage and just pass it by. But let us look and study each word in its detail as best we can, putting forth diligence. That way we honor Christ and we say we honor you and we honor your apostles' word that you inspired through your Holy Spirit. And we want to look at every detail as best and as fitting as we can so that we may serve, honor, and glorify you to bring you joy, God. Our life's goal is to bring you joy. And we also wish to taste of the blessing of joy from you for obeying. So a twofold promise. Bringing God joy ought to be our goal, but it's also okay to desire the joy that God will give you for being obedient to his word and treating it importantly in every detail and section as best you can. So let's look at Romans 13, 5 through 7. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So let's, let's look at verse 5 here. The point that Paul has for us is that it is necessary to be in subjection. So the first point is, it's necessary, so it's mandatory, it's required, it's obligatory, it's compulsory. We must be in subjection to the governing authorities. We must pursue this. It's necessary, Paul says. That's how important it is. 
And then there's two reasons why in the rest of verse 5 here. He gives us not only because of wrath. So wrath, the fear of wrath, ought to be a motivator as to why it's necessary to be in subjection to the government. So wrath is a reason that we ought to be in subjection to the government and also for conscience sake. In the Bible, God talks about wrath and he talks about each of us humans' conscience. Okay, so what about wrath? Let's look at wrath for a minute here. What happens is that, one, the government has the authority to inflict wrath upon you. Judgment, discipline, punishment. This is the judicial arm of the law, the judicial arm of government. Judges, police, uh, prisons, and sentences of various kinds. Uh, Capital punishment, the death penalty. There is wrath for uh, crime, uh, all all the varying degrees and levels of crime, all the way up to uh, some of the most uh, heinous crimes of uh, very serious kinds of and ugly kinds of murder and uh, kidnapping and molestation and other things that are de- that are decided upon as as very grievous and very heinous in nature of a high degree of crime deserving high degrees of punishment. And so there is fear. There is fear and there is fear of wrath. And we ought to be in subjection to the government because of wrath. Our mind, our conscience ought to be aware that there is wrath, there is punishment, there is discipline that the government can put out. And there's also the potential that God could punish you himself as well. I believe this passage might be emphasizing government's authority to wield the sword of punishment and discipline upon those of us, anybody in human society, that would break its laws and and be deserving of punishment and discipline. And so we ought to fear punishment, and it ought to be a strong motivator for us and to instruct our children about the government and its wrath and its right to punish and put people in prison and to inflict various fines or other things. And we ought to respect that and show honor to them and show honor to them by teaching and training each other and our children to respect the law of the land as best as possible. So fear of of wrath is a strong motivator Fear of wrath is a strong motivator. The other reason is that Paul offers in this section is for a clean conscience sake. Okay, so we ought to desire a clean conscience before God. When you stand before Jesus Christ, it it won't be one of of pride. You're not going to air out your dirty crimes before him and have a smirk on your face as if you did everything okay. Uh, It won't be like that. If you could learn from the prophet Isaiah, you would understand that when he, a prophet of God, was given a vision of God, he was terrified of standing in the holy, holy, holy presence of the Lord. He fell to the ground, ashamed, and he confessed his sin. He said, woe to me, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah recognized when you, be, when you get in the presence 
of the Most Holy, and you see how brilliant his light really is, you will realize how dark even the smallest of offenses that you have committed are. It will be a great contrast. God's light is so great that even the smallest of sins that you didn't think were that big of a deal, the slightest slip of the tongue, you will recognize how great of an offense it is to the purest of light, to God. And your conscience will be aware in God's presence of how dark your small little crimes are that they are extreme. Because look at the prophet Isaiah's experience. He said, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Even the man who is a spokesman for God recognized that his mouth, the tongue, often failed. He, he wasn't perfect in his mouth and in his life. And he recognized that before God and he confessed his sin in his presence. So let that be a lesson for us that even the smallest of crimes we have, the smallest of offenses of the lip or the tongue, are very offensive to God. And if we had an encounter like Isaiah with the God of the universe, we too would fall on our face and cry, woe is me, I am unclean, and I dwell amongst unclean people. My eyes have seen the king, and I am ruined. I am ruined. And so let us consider that. Let us consider our conscience. When you stand before God, you will have to give an account for your life. Even as a believer, yes, it is true that you will not have condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as Paul just previously taught us in Romans 8. But I believe we will have to give an account, as the Bible also says, the New Testament also says, as believers to the Lord for our faithfulness. And... I believe there will be suffering of loss for the days and the moments that we ruined sinning, um, focusing on self, not obeying God's smallest commands. And so Paul gives us a little tidbit here. We ought to fear wrath of the government. And even God can judicially punish us as believers, as he did Israel, believing Israel, the remnant of Israel in the past. He too also disciplines his church and the people and individuals in the church when they fail to represent him well. Uh, you can read Revelation 1 through 3, his warnings to the churches that are tolerating various kinds of sin in their midst, that he's going to come and remove their lampstand and their light. Uh, he, might, he might judge them and discipline them in various ways. And so there is warning for believers in the Bible. And Peter says it's time for the judgment to begin with the household of God first. We as believers should receive God's judgment and discipline. And there are individual cases of that in the Bible. Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit and Peter about how much attractive land that they sold was worth. And they were trying to get credit for selling the whole piece of land and giving the whole proceeds of the whole value of the land of the apostles. But they kept back a part for themselves. But they wanted the credit as, as if they gave all the money. They wanted that prestige. And so they were hypocritical. Their giving was hypocritical. It wasn't honest. Peter said, just say that you were going to give half of the price of the land, you know, or whatever it was actually worth is, and what you decided to give was what you decided to give. But they wanted to act as, as if they gave it all. But that wasn't true. They kept the money back and they were looking for a name to honor themselves. And God killed them both for that, for lying. 
and for being hypocritical in their giving. Uh, other examples would be in 1 Corinthians that the Lord was putting people to death in the Corinthian church for taking the Lord's Supper wrongly, hypocritically, not humbly, and for caring about themselves more than they did about others and poor brethren amongst them and things. There were examples when, of the Lord's discipline in the Acts and in the early church. So let us consider our conscience and always strive to keep a clean conscience before God. And like I pointed out with that John verse, John 15, when Jesus tells his disciples about obedience, our conscience ought to yearn to be pure and to be clean before God. And we ought to be striving to please and honor him and obey him in even the smallest of details. If we are ignorant of a passage or a place of scripture, then ask the Lord to help us us keep studying scripture and to have the time to look through it and that we may honor God in the smallest ways. And obviously there are many things that we will forget and that we will willfully um, willfully sin against God at times and do the wrong thing that we know is right. And pray for repentance and for God to be gracious to us and to assist us in a change of heart and direction in that specific area. So keeping a clean conscience is important. And I want you to have a clean conscience before God. I care about your soul. I care about what will happen to you on the day of Christ Jesus. And as Paul always wanted for all of his children that he preached the gospel to in all of his churches, his pastoral desire was to see them high and lifted up, to have them receive great rewards and that he could glory in Christ's power at work in them for their obedience and their faithfulness. And that's my prayer for you and desire for you all, is that you will care so much for God and his word, for obedience to him, and that I will get the glory in Christ Jesus as I see you walking in his truth and walking in his commands, and that he will get all the glory for that. For it's he who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And I will glory when he receives all the credit for that one day. Be at work, be sober-minded, obey God as best you can, pursue the word, and pursue purity. For Christ is worthy of all your effort and desire. Another thing about the sword, because of wrath, I want you to understand that sometimes God does choose to bring down wrath and discipline upon us. And sometimes that's through government, uh, uh, the judicial arm of the law. And I want us to talk just briefly about the capital punishment, the death penalty. And consider a story in the Bible where the death penalty resulted in the salvation of an individual. So pay close attention. This is good. This is good for us to hear, I believe, and to consider this. The death penalty is a powerful tool in salvation sometimes. And I'll point the passage out where that is true. Perhaps you already know. And in your mind, it came to your mind. The death penalty is demanded by God for serious crimes. All societies, governments, would do well not to extinguish God's Genesis 9-6 command of blood for blood or life for life, uh, speaking of murder specifically, most specifically, but that can be expanded out to other serious crimes as well. When the rebel on the cross next to Jesus asked Jesus to remember him, he first acknowledged his guilt and acknowledged death on a painful cross was what he deserved. 
He didn't try to hide it up. He acknowledged that that's exactly what he deserved. God used, I want you to pay attention to this, God used governmental judgment, the death penalty, painful suffering and death on a cross for this man's serious crime to be a helpful tool in this man's salvation. God used capital punishment and the pain and the suffering of this death, of this form of death, that the government was enacting upon the thief on the cross. He used this to humble this man. Pain crushes our pride sometimes. It's through great pain and and suffering sometimes that God will use to humble the most proud of sinners. And this is the case for the thief on the cross, the rebel, the insurrectionist on the cross. He was guilty of a serious crime. And it was through this death penalty, this painful death, that he was humbled. Moments before, and you can read this in Matthew 27, 38 through 40, and Luke and Mark, and you can compare the stories. Luke tells us that there was a change of heart in this man. But Matthew and Mark both show us that both the thieves, both the robbers, both the rebels, both the insurrectionists, there's debate about what their crime actually was. So I believe it was, uh, you know, armed robbery, and the term robber will be used in our English translations. And others understand that they were with Barabbas for being a, um, for having lethal weapons like small daggers or swords, and they were part of a radical Jewish sect of, of uh, that was willing to try to kill Roman soldiers and overthrow the government. And so that's why sometimes they would call them insurrectionists uh, and rebels. But this man was hurling insults with the other rebel on the cross at Jesus. God chose to save this man from his eternal punishment, but he opened his mind to the truth of the gospel. At some point there on the cross, there was a change of heart. He had heard this truth. This man had heard this truth previously. It was, it came to his, God illuminated his mind on the cross. There was a conversion experience on the cross because this man had heard of the gospel because when they were hurling the insults at Jesus, it says that they had heard him in the temple. It says they had listened to Jesus teaching in the temple or they had heard of Jesus in the temple. And we know that because it says that they said, you claimed to be the son of God, but you're dying on this cross, get yourself down. And so they they heard and they knew that he had claimed to be the son of God. They had heard Jesus's teaching at some point in time. And that's the detail I really want us to understand is that they heard Jesus teaching in the temple or somewhere at some point in time, they'd heard his message that he was the son of God. They heard about him. They knew about him. They'd heard the teaching about him. They knew that he had the power to forgive people of sins and to do miracles because they said, you're the son of God and you could save other people's lives. Why don't you save yourself? Why don't you save yourself? And so these people were aware of Jesus's teaching. But it's the man on the cross. One of them has the change of mind. He's converted by the Spirit of God. The truth that he knew about Jesus, 
Jesus' claim to deity. Jesus' claim that he had a kingdom and that he welcomed sinners to repent and to come into his kingdom under him, under his rulership, under his lordship, and that he offered life, that he was the bread of life, and that he was God, and that he could forgive sins. The one man remembered Jesus' teaching, and this is what he said to Jesus. He turned to Jesus and he desired that life. He wanted that life and he recognized Jesus as having a kingdom. He said to him, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. This man knew that Jesus preached the kingdom of God and that he was the king over that kingdom. And he wanted to be a part of that. And he requested of Jesus to remember him when he, Jesus, goes into his kingdom. This man proved that he believed what Jesus said, that he believed he was the son of God and that he ruled a real kingdom, that he was the ruler of heaven. And this man wanted to be in. He recognized his sin and he repented of his sin. How do we know that? Because he says, we deserve the punishment that we're getting. Notice what this man's repentance was like. He recognized and and confessed that his sins were worthy of death. He didn't lie about that. He didn't hold it back. He truly confessed that what we are getting, we deserve. But he, Jesus, does not deserve this. He is innocent. The other rebel on the cross, it appears, never had the change of heart that God granted to the other one. He died in his sins. His conscience was dirty. It was unrepentant. It was hurling insults at Jesus and making fun of him for his claims to be the son of God and to have a kingdom. But he's dying on this cross. This man died not in humility before God, not in awareness of personal guilt and transgression against God, not with confession, asking God to be merciful and to remember him. No, this man's end was a tragic one, a sad one. And I, I have an exhortation to us all. Let us all strive to turn our neighbors to God's message of repentance and faith in his son. To repent of sin, to acknowledge that God is right, that our sin is dirty and it is ugly, and even the smallest of sins is worthy of death. And that we would acknowledge that and agree with God about our sin and that it is serious to him. And that we would ask God, we would cast ourselves on his mercy and ask God to be merciful to us too, just as the rebel on the cross did. So God used a painful capital punishment to open this man's mind. It was a part of the tool. It was through suffering and death for serious crime. It was in that event, that hard struggling event, the very end of this man's life that God worked. And there's a lot of hope in that too. So I want us to not shy away from the death penalty. That even in death, even in serious death and suffering, God can save a man from his sins. That even at the very end, it's not too late for God to work and to convict a sinner of sin and for him to believe in Jesus Christ to give him life. It's never too late. Even at the very end, God works. And that is very hopeful for us. I hope that that makes us realize that even at the end, there is hope for us to preach the gospel to a sinner, to remind him 
to turn from his wicked ways and to acknowledge God's justice and to plea for God's mercy and to trust in his son to believe that Jesus Christ can bring you into the kingdom, that he has the power and the authority to forgive you of sins, that he has the power to give you the right to be resurrected to eternal life, that it's he that can bring you into his kingdom and put joy in your heart forever with him. So the end of life, even at the very end of life, it's never over till it's fully over. So uh, for all you people that do prison ministry and um, all you lawyers and judges that have to finally cast a death sentence on a person, God, God commands you to do so, but understand that God, in the event of death, can still save people. It's through death sometimes that God will humble a person. It's through that very moment before death that God may humble a person to realize they need to get right with God. And so, don't be afraid of, of using the death penalty as God has commanded. And two, Christians who are evangelists and speak to people, even in death, it's not too late for us to have hope for people that God can save. For we see that God does work at the end of somebody's life, even in a most painful, suffering type of death and situation. Now let's move on to verse 6 and verse 7. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. And so the thing that the rulers are devoting themselves to is justice, to carrying out capital punishment, to policing the streets, to, to providing safety for people, uh, police and military, provide safety for its citizens that dwell in the land. And that's why we pay them taxes. Why do we pay them taxes? We pay them taxes for the rulers are servants of God and they devote themselves to justice and to the security of the land, to punishing crime and to helping people live in a somewhat organized and orderly organized society with some law and order. And so that's why we pay our taxes. The government will take care of enforcing justice on the whole of society and pastors, we pay our pastors for a similar reason because Pastors provide for us church discipline and an organized, orderly church service. They do work to oversee the church, to preach the good news to us, to shepherd and love us, to serve as examples to us. And so we pay the government for doing its godly services of keeping law and order, just as we pay pastors and elders and overseers to take care of our church and bring order to our church to preach and teach the word in orderly, organized ways, and to shepherd and love the flock, to spend time counseling people, loving people, discipling them, teaching them truth, uh, so that they have time to go and serve people, love people, pray with people, guide people, instruct people, uh, even serve people. Uh, pastors are not beyond serving people in other ways besides preaching and teaching and discipling and truth. Jesus washed people's feet. Jesus fed people. Jesus did lots of things for people in different ways. He healed people. We can give our money to love and serve other people. We can take care of people in need. We can give a tunic, a coat, a meal to someone in need. We can do acts of service for people. And so we pay our pastors to do those things. And we ought to pay our government what they ask so that they can fulfill their duties as well. Verse 7. 
Render to all what is due to them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. So God commands that we give what is due to the governing officials, and whether that's money, fear, or dignity. We respect them, and we pay them as God has told us and commanded us to do. Now here's a quick little story for you guys. Nothing is new amongst God's people. So this command isn't new. And sometimes we fail to see the importance of even the smallest or the most difficult of commands. So sometimes commands are small and they're hard to remember because they seem kind of trivial or out of the way. And sometimes commands are very big and they're very difficult to follow and obey. But let us look back to the history of Israel. Let us look back to the Old Testament scriptures and consider, as it has been written to us for an example, The Israelites had a fair, just, and kind taxation and economic law with God as their theocratic king. Yet they still struggled as individuals and as a nation with sin and with wrong minds. And sometimes they did not always do what was right. Many times. We can read that. Just as the church and believers don't always do what's right. Uh, The church has all kinds of sinful people Uh, needing a physician to heal them and to correct them. And that's why Paul says to teach, preach, correct, rebuke, exhort, train. And so that's what pastors do, and that's what the Word is to do to all of us. It corrects us and reproves us and rebukes us sometimes. And sometimes it's painful. Hopefully it's mostly formative that by teaching we, we don't have to go through church discipline or the discipline of the government. But look back at Israel They struggled with sin and wrong minds and they ignored truth and they ignored God's laws and they didn't follow everything even though they had it there for them just like it's there for us. The truth of God's word, we're to obey. The Jews never celebrated their Sabbath years of rest or their years of jubilee. And you can read that in Exodus 23, Leviticus 25 and 26, and in uh, 2 Chronicles 36. 21. The Jews were commanded to worship God in the way in which he prescribed for them. Yet many struggled to allow, many struggled and allowed worldliness of the surrounding nations and worship of false deities to creep in amongst them. Now there is always a remnant of believing Jews, but even the remnant of Israelites had to suffer alongside the unbelieving people of Israel when God came to discipline the nation and the people. The believers still had to suffer alongside the unbelievers. God's discipline came down upon Israel. And as idolatry and the neglect of God's commands, God's proper religion and his ordinances and his commands being observed by the people out of love for him and respect for him, striving to keep his word, as disobedience grew amongst the Israelites, the land and the people would suffer God's discipline as a result. God sent the nation of Israel into captivity for its greed and idolatry, for its ignorance or wrongdoing. And we need to do what is right. There's a lesson in there for us and a warning that we need to do what's right. We need to not let the world creep in amongst our mind. We need to keep sober-minded. We need to keep disobedience and worldliness away from our souls and from our actions and from our minds. 
We don't, don't need to let the sinful world infiltrate our lives, our families, our leisure time, what we do for hobbies, what we do with our money and our resources. We need to be careful to expend ourselves on what is good and right and noble and virtuous. We need to pursue loving God, worshiping Him, and, and loving, unserving others and obeying God's commands. That's what we need to spend ourselves on. When we neglect God's commands, we too can suffer lack, loss of joy, loss of reward future for loss of time that God gave us to obey. We won't have as many rewards or a rank as high in heaven. If we neglect his laws and his truths, we don't follow them out. And we might suffer discipline. We might suffer pain and loss in some way. There might be some form of discipline and judgment on us. The life of faith is a life of hard work, just as it was with Israelites past, so it is also with the church today, now and present. It's hard work to live a life of faithfulness and obedience to God. It's hard to hold fast to Him and His ways. It's difficult to shine as a light. It's difficult not to sin. It's difficult. We still have the flesh. While our hearts and our minds are born again and we have the indwelling spirit, the flesh is warring against that. It's warring against what we desire to, uh, to love and to serve God. It seeks to tear and pull us down. And Satan still operates in our flesh to turn us away. But we need to strive for what's good and we need to see and to do what God says for us to do. It's not time to keel over and allow sin and disobedience to, uh, to take over. It's time for us to man up, to woman up, to be strong and courageous for the Lord and to do what's right and to crucify our flesh. Like it says here, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. So we need to put on Christ and put off the flesh. And look at what it says. Make no provision. Don't give your flesh an opportunity. Don't provide for it. Don't provide for your flesh. Cut it off. Put on Jesus Christ. Put on the, the obedient commands. Don't make provisions for your flesh. Don't make opportunities available in your life for you to sin. Take care how you walk. Take care what you, what you do and what you watch and what you are saying and doing. We need to take care and not, not provide for evil in our life to happen. We need to make sure we're taking all of our time and our resources and our efforts and putting it on, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't provide, don't provide for evil in your life. Don't provide an opportunity. Don't give to it. Don't give in. Don't give your money and your time and your strength to sin. Give your money and your time and your strength to the Lord. Okay, pastors... I often think of this analogy because I am an ex-military man. And the, the Lord does use military analogies in, in the New Testament. Paul does. And God is a king. And God and Jesus Christ is a, a warrior and a lord. Soldiers are called to serve the one who enlisted them. This is Paul says. And pastors are kind of like the commissioned officers. They train and they oversee the soldiers. But it's every soldier's duty, whether an officer or an enlisted man, 
to serve the king loyally and faithfully with all the gifts and talents they have and with the level of responsibility they've been given and with the gifts and talents they have. You as a soldier of Christ or you as a pastor, a commissioned officer in his army to oversee his soldiers, you must see to it and see to your duty to honor God with everything you are and can. We are in a war and in a battle against the flesh. Strive, labor, go to war for your king. Make it your highest duty and ambition to honor him above all things, to cherish Christ above all things and to serve him with your every ounce of effort. He is worthy. God promises great reward for those that overcome and pursue righteousness and pursue purity to pursue him those that love him that cherish him that cherish his word and his commands he promises great reward and great joy in heaven i'm going to read from peter here first peter 2 says this a closing verse for us submit yourself for the lord's sake to every human institution submit Subject yourself to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him. So lower forms from the highest form of government, lower forms of government. The governors that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. And so there you see the judicial arm, the responsibility that governments have from God is to punish evildoers and to praise good those who behave well. Governments should be doing that punishing evil and praising goodness, praising good citizens for their uh, good duty and their obedience. Verse 15, For such is the will of God, that by doing what is right, you may, silence the, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. So foolish men would disobey the government. And we silence the ignorance of foolish men by doing what is right, by obeying, by living a virtuous life, a God-honoring life, a government-honoring life. Peter says this, Act as free men, but do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. And so we're supposed to be slaves of God and honor the government. Don't use our freedom in Christ as a covering to just sin. Just because there's no condemnation for us in Jesus Christ does not mean that we can use it as a covering to do evil on the land that we can continue pursuing evil. And Paul says not to do that further back in Romans. Just, just because uh, we, don't, we don't sin more so that grace may increase, by no means, he says. We, that ought not to be our attitude. The attitude of salvation, though it is all of grace, is that we not sin, that we pursue obedience and love of the Lord now. That's always the call of the gospel and the truth of God. Old Testament and New, nothing's changed. God saves us by his grace and his mercy, and we never tread upon God's grace and mercy. Because of grace and mercy, we ought to desire and we are commanded to pursue love and good deeds. Peter says this, last verse, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Lord, thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. I pray that it will go into your servant, your soldier's lives and it will be effectual in their hearts and in their minds, and that they will live for you more passionately in every small detail. 
that they will love you and cherish you above all things. Thank you for their lives. I pray for them all, all the people of the Roman Sunday School class and all that community Bible church here in Pierre and all the Christians across the whole earth, Lord. I pray that you would strengthen us, that you would teach us the things, that you would show us the things you are trying to teach us and show us, that we would pray more, that we would be humble, that we would, we would rely upon you, and that we would be faithful and hold fast to your word and to your truth, and that we would obey you as best we can during this time. That lives of truth and obedience would shine forth even greater now in this trial. That we would show forth lives of love and hope to the world around us. Lord, we trust your will and what you are doing. We ask that you would end this time soon but that we would be faithful and obedient and loving and kind during this time in greater ways. Amen.